I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, Adam Buxton here, reporting from the county of Norfolk in the east of the United Kingdom. It's a grey afternoon in late November 2019. Light grey, flat light, very still. It's one of those days that feels a bit like you're on a sound stage. I don't know if you've ever been on a sound stage for a big feature film, but I have. So I've been in quite a few feature films. Big feature films, and this is what it's like. Weird and still. Listen to how still it is. Not even any Tweety Birds. It's quite post-apocalyptic. You can hear the cars roaring away in the background. My best dog friend Rosie is up ahead, but she doesn't make much noise, do you, Rose? No, I don't really like noise, barking, that kind of thing. It's one of the reasons that we get on, I think. Obviously, I'm fine with barking in principle. I believe in free speech. But I don't like inside barking, you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I don't really do barking unless I'm outside the house and everyone's forgotten, in which case I do a bark to indicate that I'd like to be let in. Totally fair enough. And then sometimes you do mystery barks. I do, yes, I do those at ghosts and malevolent entities. Tentities, did you say? Entities. Right, sir. Anyway, Rose, you go ahead. Have a good scamper. I'm going to tell the podcats about podcast 111, which features a rambly conversation with Nicky Wire, lyricist, bassist, and occasional vocalist with the Welsh alternative rock band Manic Street Preachers. Nicky Fax. Nicky went to school at Oakdale Comprehensive School in Caerphilly County, Wales, which was where he met his future bandmates, James Dean Bradfield, Sean Moore and Richie Edwards. The Manic Street Preachers formed in 1986, and by the time their first single, Suicide Alley, was released in 1988, their politically charged punk sound was already defiantly out of step with a musical landscape dominated by genres like acid house, shoegaze, dream pop, grebo, baggy, wongle, douchecore, smelly pop, and goink. I did make some of those up. The band quickly built up a fiercely loyal following, releasing three albums, Generation Terrorists, Gold Against the Soul, and The Holy Bible, before tragedy struck in 1995 when the band's main lyricist, Richie Edwards, disappeared following bouts of depression and self-harm. He was later legally presumed dead in 2008. The band made the decision to continue without Richie, 
with Nicky Wire, now solely responsible for writing lyrics to accompany James Dean Bradfield's music, and they began their most commercially successful phase of their career with 1996's Everything Must Go and 1999's This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours, both winning Album of the Year at the Brit Awards. It is hard to think of too many other bands who could put out a single like 2000's The Masses Against the Classes, which opens with a sample of Noam Chomsky and ends with a quotation from Albert Camus and then have it reach number one. It was uh, the first new number one of the 2000s, incidentally. Throughout the rise of the Manic Street Preachers in the 90s, Nicky acquired a reputation for giving frank and sometimes controversial interviews and making outrageous statements, some of which Nicky has come to regret. I've posted a link to an NME compilation of some of his choicest pronouncements in the description of this podcast. And we discussed them a little bit as well in our conversation, which was recorded about this time last year, actually, 2018, in a uh, London hotel room. Nicky was in London performing promotional duties for the band's last album, Resistance is Futile. There was a bit of Bowie chat. We talked about good times and bad times in the Manics. We talked about hotels. I wanged on a little bit about the difficulties of uh, bringing up children, and uh, it was altogether a very enjoyable encounter. So, with Nicky Wire, here we go. bump into each other back I like in the to day? think of as Glastonbury or something like that. Right. That wasn't the famous toilets year, well, was it? Well, toilet year was 98 or 99, <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> toilet year. Yeah, toilet cake, which I'm still really proud of. Uh, which I, I never quite understood at the time. Like, what, what well, was it? Was it real? Howard, I was a Howard Hughes phase of my life, yeah. where, which still hovers around me, uh-huh. of germs and stuff. And I just... We did, when we did the famous build a bypass over this shithole, Glastonbury, in 94. That was something that you said on stage. Yes. Just to be, kind of, wind people up. Yeah. And I actually thought about it a few days before as well and sort of got the okay from the rest of the band. Yeah. And we, at that point, we it was the height of our Holy Bible, anti-everything, you know, and it was a it was pulverising gig of just nastiness. And Channel 4 were doing it then. Uh-huh. Broadcasting it and uh, I think Mark Commode was doing it. And it was just, it was pure hate, you know. Yeah. So then four years then on, and we were only on the second stage somewhere or something, I don't know, in the middle of nowhere. But then we headlined in 98, because this is my truth had done so well. And um, I just wanted my own toilet, because I didn't want to use other bands' toilets. Yeah. And Billy Bragg saw it, I think. <laughs> and put a sign on, you know, that it's not very egalitarian or for the people and stuff like that. But, it, you know, I saw the funny side of that. Yeah. Oh, I did say fuck off, you big nose cunt. 
on stage too. <laughs> but we met, we've met loads of times since. And it, was, it was pre-banter. Yeah. <laughs> and even in the pre-social media days, it got some traction. It did. Yeah, because there was enemy journalists everywhere, Maldi maker journalists yeah. everywhere. It's too delicious to pass up. I think, especially British people, any whiff of what they consider to be hypocrisy. Yes. They rub their hands. Well, yes. we had that, we'd had a whole year of that. You know, the, the kind of becoming, not champagne socialist, but we had become the biggest band in Britain that year, really, from everything must go to this, my truth, from being, you know, some situationist socialist punks. And the despair of work and boredom and all that, you know. So I was completely aware of that anyway. And um, I kind of wanted to ram home the point as much as anything, that we didn't care. Yeah. That working class people were never ashamed of actually making money, you know, where we came. It wasn't like, there was nothing shameful about becoming massive because that's what we'd always wanted to do. Yeah, and was it as straightforward in your mind as that? Or were yeah. you were there dark nights of the soul? No, there wasn't because we'd become, you know that big with Design for Life and Tolerate. And Tolerate was a four and a half minute song about the Spanish Civil War and homage to Catalonia. And Design for Life was a dissection of working class Britain. So we hadn't compromised lyrically at all Mm -hmm. at that point. You know, it was a big mouthful. This is my truth, tell me yours, was a quote from Niren Bevan. Wait a minute. Comes with me. Oh, you got your little statue? (laughs) Yes. Whoa, that's commitment. And um, to get that quote, it was, it was an anniversary and um, up in Tredegar, where he, was, he used to do the speeches of these stones on a mountain in Tredegar, which is bleak. It's right up the valleys. Yeah. It was fucking freezing. It was an anniversary. And they were replaying his speeches with a bit of a, a really bad light show. And my brother took me up and he was, these old speeches were bellowing out of a crap PA. And this is my true time. Yours came out, which is one of the things he used to say quite a lot. So, you know, the the kind of inception of that album was as working class as you could get, really. Yeah. <laughs> On top of Tredegar Mountain. So I should explain further that Nicky has pointed to a small statue. It's about seven inches high of Nybevan. You got it from, like, a Labour gift shop. <laughs> yeah, something like that, where they do the grogs. Now, it, it's with it in our studio. It comes on tour with us, and it's just a little nod. Sure. Were you there in 2000 at Glastonbury when Bowie was there? Oh, when you didn't do your interview with him. Yeah, when we... Big regrets. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I read that. (laughs) Which is a good regret to have, that you didn't interview him. Yeah, I never really... I wasn't there, no. No. Did you ever meet Bowie? James met him. Yeah. James just said he was completely magnetic. And, you know, it's not many people you really kind of... You are nervous around James was really said... (laughs) You know, could hardly speak. Yeah. And that was funny because that period, it wasn't like, there wasn't quite as much awe for him around that time, no. was there? I think it was 95 when Bowie had just come back with that Eno collaboration, One Outside. Oh, yeah. The Nathan Adler Diaries, <laughs> A Hypercycle. <laughs> Part one of a promised series of concept <laughs> albums about future art crime. <laughs> Which, uh, apparently, according to Eno, was one of their biggest regrets that they had never revisited. They said, oh, that fell through the cracks a little bit, that one. We were always very fond of it. I was like, fucking hell, it didn't fall far enough through the cracks, as far as I'm concerned. But some people really love it. No, I, I love Buddha of Suburbia soundtrack. Yeah, there's great stuff on there. I really did like that. I mean, there's, there's stuff to love on all of those records around there. And but then, it, it was a struggle to really be committed 
to being a fan of him at that point. If yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know? And it just, it was a, likewise, when we started off, you know, around 88, the Beatles weren't, the Beatles had lost their cachet at that point. You know, it wasn't until the anthology series and Britpop that all of a sudden the Beatles just came back massively as the biggest and greatest thing ever. And I just, I'm hoping it happens to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going through a middle period of not, you know, we'll have a period where we're semi-forgotten and then be rediscovered. If you wait long enough, it exactly. all comes round. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I always say at award shows. That's right. <laughs> Maybe we've been in the same room at sort of Q Awards or something yes. like that. But you were someone who I thought I'd better keep out of his way because he might hurt me. People always thought, you know, particularly of me, I was, I found it really quite embarrassing after a while for James and Sean because we'd turn up at festivals and you could tell there was real enmity towards me and when Richie was around Richie because we just slagged everything off so, with so much venom and hatred. Yeah. And because I was tall and I had a bass guitar, the people did really, you know, avoid me. Big time. It still happens to this day. They don't quite, you know, even if you say you really love something, I don't think they quite believe that I do. Uh-huh. But I'm much... Oh, I'm lovely now. <laughs> well, you seem lovely. Yeah. Back then, there was some, you know... I wonder how it would be amplified in today's... Yeah. You know, because it was... Me and Richie were slightly unhinged. But everyone was against each other. Yeah. And then we got the Gallaghers, you know. Yeah doing the same sort of thing. And I've talked about this before, but that as well was a kind of pre-internet freedom that they had. Yes. Of just being able to sound off and say all sorts of... And occasionally the enemy would pick up on stuff that they thought was beyond the pale, if there was anything sort of homophobic that was said, you know. Then there would be a scandal. And, of course, with Morrissey and all that sort of um, National Front disco-type stuff. Madness gig. Yeah, the Union Jack. Yeah, so those stories were picked up on. Yeah, but even then, they remained something that people who were just into music were concerned with. Well, if even when Richie disappeared, when you think about it, now you'd imagine there'd be a sky helicopter searching or something. If you know what I mean, it just wasn't that era. It was, you know, it was a news story, but it wasn't. You wonder how all those things would be treated now. I'm glad we grew up in the era. We were at the Enemy Awards once and Liam just stands up and goes, come on, you cunts, you know, do you, let's have it, or something along those lines. And him and James had a back and forth, but it was just, no one got offended by that at all. I was yeah. genuine fun back then. Right, OK. It was, you know, total I was, fun. I was never cut out for that kind of thing. Confrontation immediately makes my voice wobble. Yeah. So I couldn't have done that. So I'm always fascinated by people who can do that. Yeah. I'm always like, wow, do you re- is it really fun or are you secretly going back and... I look back at it now thinking I, we were really brave because I can't do it now at all. Mm. I would stay up all night panicking about it. I really, I, I just I'm, I don't have that inner strength or just uh, careless nature that I did have then. It just, it didn't matter at all. I don't think I ever had, you know, once you meet people, there's never really any bad feeling. Well, I never felt it anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? When you're in front of someone, it's a very, very different thing to reading stuff they've said or having it quoted to you. I've never had a physical fight with anyone. Have you not? No. Well, that's good. (laughs) James Um, has. (laughs) Oh, yeah? I I never, you know, I never have and I never want to. I was looking at some of your spicier quotes. Oh, Lord. I mean, they're, they're, they're good value. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
Some of them are just too far. Especially, what would you say was the most beyond the pale one? <sighs> I'd rather not bring it up, but... Probably the John Lennon. <laughs> was pretty bad. Like, Rich, Richie's um, Hitler slow dive one is pretty. You know, we'll always hate slow dive more than Hitler. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so petty and yeah. tiny. It's not like slow dive were that big at the time. Slow dive. How could you get so... <laughs> well, there you have it. How could we exercised. get so worked up about something so pointless? Yeah. We did buy into ourselves at that point that we, you know, that James and Sean would take care of the music and we would take care... Of offending people. Yes. Yeah. And looking beautiful. Yeah. That was our role. Which is, an, it was a nice division of labour. Sure. It was very Marxist. No, that's good. That's what you need. I mean, you had the whole package, didn't you? And then you had the attention to the artwork yeah. that was so wonderful. And who's that presiding over that? Well, it was. That was me and Richie. It was more Richie at the start, but, you know... Again, it was just, it was a perfect separation that we didn't have egos involved with. You mm. know, I mean, Richie would do the lyrics, you know, a lot of the photographs. And James and Sean were happy. They didn't really want to sit in front of a, a camera all day, you know, but we loved, you know, we did a famous cover with The Enemy with Kevin Cummins, which ended up just me and Richie on it. And they said it was the first ever cover that had a bass player and a guitarist who didn't play on it. Uh huh. You know, didn't have the front man. James, it just yeah. did me and Richie, and we went out the night before and got love bites, which you know was a bit of a bit of an effort. Where'd you get love bites? Well, just hey, <laughs> you didn't give them to each other. No, and it looked brilliant. It looked so cheap and nasty. Yeah, it really did. And we had leopard print jackets on. Kevin Cummins absolutely loved it, but you could tell him sort of shuffling James and Sean out the way after uh-huh. an hour or two, and. um we had culture sluts written all over us. And, uh, you know, that was our first cover of the enemy, lying together arm in arm on a gold army rug. You know, we, we were meeting lots of our heroes, be it Penny Smith or Kevin Cummins. You know, we loved photography. We loved it. We knew everything. People were really shocked that we knew everything about them, journalists and photographers, because we'd just grown up devouring all those things. Were you art school boys? Well, no, me and Richie, I did politics in university and Richie did history. Right, okay. And he was super bright. Yeah. I was, you know, at his coattails. He could have gone to Cambridge. He had three A's in his A-levels, but he couldn't be asked oh. to go to Cambridge. I had two A's and a B, so I let the side down a bit. And then um, we both ended up in Swans University then. And is that where you met? No, we, had, we both went to the same school. All oh, four okay. of us went to the same did school. Did you? Right. Yes. James and myself have been in school, same school since we were four. Whoa. And then Richie and Sean were a year above us. Yeah. There was always a desire to be heard, all four of us, definitely. Myself, Richie, in a lyrical sense, and James, because James picked up a guitar at 14 and literally learned Exile on Main Street in a week. Wow. And he'd never played guitar. I'd been bashing away and sort of trying to play a little bit. He got appetite for destruction. He learned that the next week. It was just... You know, he couldn't read music. He was just listening to it. It was, just, it was actually... But was it any good or was it just like... <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it. Some people have just got it and it's waiting to be unlocked. Yes. Whereas um, other people, myself, for example, <laughs> are locked out. Yeah. And there's no way it's ever going to happen. Well, I can't read me. I'm, I'm just not a musician. My instrument is my pen. Yeah. But Sean was... Um, Sean could read music. He was a brilliant trumpet player, Sean. Yeah. So he, got, he was grade 8 trumpet and he did music A-level. But then he became a drummer. Does he never 
multitask when you're in the studio. Yeah, he does. He has played, done some lovely trumpet solos, but he just doesn't want to do it. He's lost his lip, as, mm. as trumpet players say. Mm. And what was Richie's upbringing like? Was it as Same. happy as yours? Yeah. Yeah, I think all of us were pretty lucky in that respect. I, strangely, we all gravitated towards Smiths, Bunny Men, Early Simple Minds. Then Guns N' Roses came along, and a lot of C eighty six and indie stuff, and we just became obsessed with music very quickly. You know, devouring Beatles, Stones, who James had his light bulb moment with Public Enemy that really kind of transformed him in terms of the, the fierce rebellion, not silly rebellion, really kind of hard. Yeah, <laughs> you know, well, we to, mean it, man. Right, exactly. For real, to quote yes. the uh, yeah. Famous arm slogan, yes, if we can call it that. <laughs> that was a good night. Yeah, Norwich and Art Centre. Was it really? Yeah, but fifty-two people. God. So when you say that was a good night, you're being ironic. Presumably. Half and half, actually, because it was. You played a good show, ish. Right. <laughs> We'd played it before to a sold out, uh, a really brilliant sold out gig, I think. And I think the second time there just wasn't so many people. Mm. And Steve Lamack came down from the enemy, and we knew that was it Steve Lamack. Yes, it was. And he would—he just wasn't fussed. He wasn't fussed. He wasn't convinced. So. I am not convinced. <laughs> ah, 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 ah. That's how I think of Steve Lamack. But it was—it was funny watching it because Ed serves the enemy photographer. You know, was was kind of morally. Which way do I go? Do I take a picture of this, or am I stepping over the line? So this was after the show. Yes. Right. And he was being interviewed and wound up, was he, by... Yeah, it's just... Whether he pre-planned it to this day, I really don't know. You know, Or whether, in that instant, he just didn't think he could convince Steve Mac that he really meant what he was saying. Mm. So um, he had a razor blade on him. So. Right. And was that something... And he cut... For people who are too young to remember, he carved the words for real with the number four into his forearm with this razor blade, wounding himself horribly in the process. Yes. That was a moment, I think, that sort of went viral in the pre-internet world. Yeah. Because it was so shocking on so many levels, you know, and people obviously were upset for him, but then kind of angry. It was like, wait, this has gone too far, you know. You shouldn't be doing this in the name of music or anything. You know what I, I mean, think everyone had an opinion. Yeah, and I think that's how deluded we were at the time, that four of us just weren't as shocked as we should have been. Mm. We weren't, honestly, no. It just seemed like Iggy or Sid Vicious, you know, right. taken to the next level. And um, Richie was very sanguine about it, you know, apart from the pain. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I went to the hospital with him that night. And we were very apologetic because it did feel like we were wasting NHS time over the self-inflicted gesture of realness. Yeah. We just weren't big either. So it did show a hell of a lot of madness stroke commitment to the cause. Right, and it was very easy just to take it as a publicity stunt. Yeah, which, you know, they didn't even put it on the cover, which was disappointing. They must have talked about it, but I presume that they said, well, we can't really. They did. You know, there's there's like a famous conversation with Danny Kelly and James Brown, the journalist, and James Brown goes... Has he written T-Rex? <laughs> Instead of for real. It's T-Rex. What's that mean? How old were you then? 
21, was it? 22. Oh, fucking hell. So you, you feel indestructible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and we were, you know, because the, we didn't have any, we were completely untouchable at that point. There was nothing like us, you know, it was the height of baggy or shoegaze, you know, and that, nothing, we didn't relate to anything or anyone. Even Suede was a year or two later, which was a little bit of a kinship with. But, um, you but know. They're, they're, it was a very different thing with them. It was just sort of sleazy yeah. glamour. yeah. Whereas you were sort of so angry. Yes. So it was, you know, we did feel completely engulfed in our own little bit of myth-making at that point. Mm. We wrote the myth and then we started to live it out in public, you know, which was kind of intoxicating for a couple of years. And was Richie's disappearance the moment that you realised and woke up or was it before then? The build-up to that that year really had been... Rather than myth-making, it became self-fulfilling prophecy and, you know, just like an avalanche of despair and, you know, making such a bleak record and then having to play it every night with the Holy Bible. And we still had moments of extreme levity because that's the way the four of us were, mm. you know, but it was, it was getting hard work for everyone and people around us. I can't imagine it being much fun managing us at that point. And were there people around you in management or in your friends and family who were counselling you at all and saying, hey, watch out, gone too far? Well, we were all very... No, everyone... We still got the same managers now. We're still on the same record label. And there's still, there's still a lot of faith and concern. Everyone, you know, Richie had gone to the Priory. I don't know if that particularly helped, but, you know, he was there. That's We did Redding as a three-piece to pay the bill. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't really particularly want to do it, but... Um, and that was that was a good kick. That was like a fucking badge of honour, just slaying the opposition. But it was an amazing show. But then you know you get off stage and the reality comes back. Then so, and we went to Thailand that year, did a famous piece of the enemy. And that was just I'd never quite recovered from that because it just turned out that we were gigantic there without knowing it. We turned out there's like two thousand people at the airport waiting for us, and we're looking behind us thinking, "Is this someone big?" coming behind us yeah it's a huge and they were just all just mobbed everywhere we went we did a sign in and it lasted like 14 hours in this intense heat and we were really fading there and the gigs were just the security were military police hitting everyone and it was just it was that was a that was a bad trip right how long were you out there for i felt like fucking weeks it's probably only five six days Really? Two, gig, two gigs. Where was the video for Motorcycle Emptiness? That was done in Japan in 92. Okay, right, yeah. Which was a similar moment, but where everything was brilliant. Again, there we went there and we were just gigantic without realising it, and we were mobbed everywhere. But that was just like the most beautiful, eye-opening moment of a different culture that you'd never experienced, that we, we've still, to this day, that we've ever had. You know, and we've always gone... We've been to Japan probably 20 times since, but that first trip was just... Awesome in the genuine sense of the word, you know. I can still smell it now, those first gigs. Because people used to say, oh, they'll be very polite at the gigs, but our gigs were just absolutely balmy, you know, just thousands of screaming young kids and all dressed up like us with spray-painted shirts. It's closest Beatlemania we've ever had. I did struggle with the food. You know, I'm not the world's greatest traveller. Mm-hmm. I did live on McDonald's apple pie, I think, <laughs> apple pie for the first two. Not of any kind of, I hate that, but I was just 
pretty petrified. Again, my Howard Hughes. Apart from my mother's cooking, I didn't eat much at that point. Right, anyway. worried about the raw fish. Yeah. James and Sean and Richie absolutely loved it. And to this day, you know, it's their favourite. Yeah, it's all our favourite place on earth yeah. still. You know, we stayed in the uh, Lost in Translation Hotel. Oh, okay. Right that's, on that's not the official name of it. <laughs> it's not. not the, the Sophia park. Coppola Hotel. <laughs> well, she definitely ripped off Motorcycle Antlers video. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Yes. That's a good point. You know, when Richie's sat on there and the girl is looking out, it's just totally, yeah. totally ripped it. And that, is, that hotel is so frightening because <laughs> the swimming pool is on the top floor, right. which must be two miles in the air. And, you know, I was swimming. I love swimming in hotel swimming pools. And I was having a beautiful swim really late at night because it's open all night. And um, then it was a minor earthquake. And you're swimming. And all of a sudden, there's waves coming in the swimming pool. Right. Because our hotels, they're all built to sway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. And I felt really... And you thought, yay, wave machine! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're in centre parts. <laughs> sat speaking of hotels in your hotel room in london and this is a hotel in the marylebone area that you guys favor when you're in town yes you haven't got anyone who can you can just sleep on their couch well i've had very little vice i don't drive yeah. i don't wear jewelry i don't wear watches i don't drink anymore but travel and hotels are my it's what i like to spend a bit of money on yeah this has got an amazing swimming pool, which is no chlorine. It's just done through electrolysis. Uh-huh. So it's like swimming in a lovely river. It is a nice hotel, let me tell you, listeners. And it's got a good mini bar. I hate this trip advisor and you go on and they're like, oh, it's got a great lobby with good Wi-Fi. Who gives a fuck? I don't care. If I have to spend £8 on a Toblerone at 4 o'clock in the morning... I want to. I don't want to go downstairs and get Wi-Fi on the lobby. <laughs> what makes a good mini bar? A good selection of drinks, which this has. Yeah. Kit Kats. The Japanese hotels are extraordinarily brilliant. Pocky sticks. Yeah, pocky sticks. Mate. Really good fruit. One of the worst things that can ever happen to a person <laughs> in life is to get to a hotel and find that there's not a fridge in it. Yeah. The curse is free view and... Lack of mini bars. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to talk to you about hotels because I, I like thinking about hotels. But I wrote, I wrote myself a note. Before we compare notes on hotels, the Twitter voice in my head would like me to reassure listeners that, yes, we know these uh, are first world problems and we are the most loathsome, privileged white men cunts on the planet for talking about this stuff. So there we go. We got that out. Yeah, well, That's the disclaimer. That is a fair point. But yeah. then... You know, they, like I said, I, ha- I don't have many vices. Yeah. I, I still live in Newport in South Wales. You've got kids, right? Yeah, two. Yeah. How old are yours? 16 and 12. Oh, okay. So you're entering that phase. Which is really hard. You think that that would make you give yourself more time, but it just doesn't. It doesn't, does it? I was talking about this last night, and 
I used to go on about like, um, you're in the tunnel from when they're born to when they're about three or four, i.e. when they're old enough not to just immediately die if something happens, <laughs> you know. Because the first few years, especially with the first one, you're just thinking, don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die. It's so panicking. The whole time, it's awful. So that's why the first, the first child is always totally screwed up. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're just around them the whole time trying to stop them dying. And then you think once that's okay, once you don't have to watch them every second of the day, you sort of think, well, then I'll be able to go back to my normal life. No. When they get older than that and you feel like you can reason with them and make them understand what? complicated <laughs> concepts and explain the world from your point of view, no, that doesn't happen either. I think no. they make you more productive because you actually realise how precious time is. Yeah. You know, even though you're knackered doing it, you do actually think any, any kind of beautiful window of opportunity for me i know anyway that i just ram it home and try and get stuff done whether yeah. it's writing words or just doing some painting or anything writing lists just anything that it does kind of it makes you appreciate time then yes and also the time you spend with them as well i think because it's crazy i don't know about your lot but they give them so much homework and i stuff. know it's mad at the moment my daughter's doing sylvia plath Oh, really? So that is, you know, manna from heaven for me. Can so she, she is she the younger one? So she's doing her A-level. Okay. She's 16, so, you know. And she goes, Dad, they're, so, they're just so miserable. They're so depressed. And I'm going, that's the glory of them. Poetry is only truly brilliant when it's either melancholic or severely depressing. Yeah. There's no place for funny poetry in the world. Um, let me think about that. Pam Ayers, I, d- I actually like Pam Ayers as a she's person. She's pretty good. She's brilliant and as she's a still broadcaster. Going. But yeah. I love her as a person, as, as a broadcaster, but not... But you don't sit there reading her poems no. and chuckling with no. a cup of tea. The, the kind of the dense melancholia of Larkin or Sylvia Plath or R.S. Thomas, you know, it's just I get great comfort from it. I don't see it as a negative. I think melancholia in particular can be a great a boost to one's self-esteem. Do you remember Tom Paulin on the uh, late, late review or late, late show, show or whatever yeah. it was? Yeah, I used yeah. to love Tom Paulin because he was so horrible on it. He was horrible, I and mean, you never quite knew the way he was going to go. I always thought of it like Bod. Do you remember the show Bod? <laughs> yes, I do. And at the end of Bod, you'd have to predict what <laughs> flavor milkshake Alberto Frog was going to have. Ooh, this week I'm going to. I don't exactly remember the voice. I'm going to. Have it was a bizarre one. voice. Yeah. Bod was a really weird program. Very odd. There was lots of weird ones. Bod, and then there was Pob. Later, do you remember Pob? I don't remember On Pob. Channel 4. Early days, of, I mean, no one remembers Pob. No. Early days of Channel 4, Pob, who was a sort of, a little weird Pop. puppet with big ears. He was, his head was just a round wooden ball with big ears and a big nose. And he would come on, and the beginning of the titles was Pob gobbing on the screen. Like he would just spit, go... And the whole screen would fill up with Pob's gob. And then he would write his name in the gob. Pob. B-O-B. Pob. <laughs> you just thought, what? What, what is anyone getting from that? What the shit is going on there? How did anyway, we get from Tom Paulin to Bod? Because of Bod. And with Tom Paulin on The Late Show, you never knew which oh, yes, way which he was going to go. go. Yeah. Like, it would be like, well, I absolutely uh, hated a... this. 
in, or, or it would be, oh, I found this actually very moving indeed, and it was extraordinary, I thought. And then when it... That's a really good impression. Thanks very much. It's one of my three decent impressions. But, you know, there's not much call for it these days. Do Tom Paulin! <laughs> <laughs> there's a band, though, called the Tom Paulins. Yes. Do you remember? Yeah, there was, anyway. yeah. TV is such a huge part of my life. Mm. Um, have you ever heard of a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman? No. I think it was written about mid-80s. So uh, Reagan's in the White House, and it's really a big thesis about where we're headed as a culture, particularly in America, just saying, you know, that the dominance of the written word has now completely lost out to yeah. uh, mass entertainment and particularly TV. And it sort of points the way quite chillingly to where we're at now. And he's just saying that discourse has been irreparably debased. Well, it's amazing, though, in um, Orwell's political language essay I was reading the other week, and his quote about um, political language has become so bad, there's better words than that, but it is just full of euphemism and vague promises, mm-hmm. which couldn't be more prescient mm. in terms of what political language yeah. has become. Right. On the one hand, you've got everyone just sort of hedging their bets, and then on the other hand, you've got Donald Trump. Yeah. There's no precise detail anymore. Whether that ever worked, I don't know, but at least... They were precise policies or precise detail. And everything has become a morass, really, of guesswork. Perhaps that's what it always was, but it feels like the facade has been lifted mm-hmm. through digital anarchy, really. It certainly felt like there were proper goodies and baddies when we were yes, growing up. it did. And now it's just a lot of grey people. It's just pick and mix. Yeah. Politics overlap. Like you said, in our day, they just didn't overlap that much. Mm. You know, it was easier to pick a side. Which I'm so happy about. Yeah. Because <laughs> I wouldn't like to be young in this age. No. Trying to disseminate all that. Right. Well, now, uh, yeah, hence the shift to identity politics, I suppose. People yeah. define themselves and, and get worked up about how they identify before they get worked up about actually what's going on in the world. Yeah, and I think causal... Not that they don't care about what's going on in oh, the world. Oh, no, not at all. But it becomes more about causes than perhaps than overall society, I guess. Yeah. But I'd like to say I don't blame people because I wouldn't know how to navigate, you know, and lucky enough, I was, it was my main interest growing up. I used to bunk off school to watch the TUC Congress on BBC Two. Mate. You know, I used to love doing stuff like that. I loved party <laughs> conference season. I loved the Labour one. It was so mental. Yeah. Just people raging and shouting, you know, kicking off. It was like watching the darts. It was just Whoa. mental. And um, I devoured it. I just genuinely found it so interesting. Having said that, I would watch the darts as well because I was obsessed with Jockey Wilson, which is another story. If only there was political darts. <laughs> Well, Eric Brewster. Pig and shit. <laughs> but were you talking about politics with your dad? Is that where it all came from yeah, and your mum? Always in the house. Yeah. Always in the house. Not a particularly of a of a particular point of view, even just, you know, watching question time. Yeah, yeah. But there wasn't much to watch anyway, was there? But um I used to love stuff like that. And now it it is so choreographed now, you know, in terms of the party conference season and all stuff like that. But it was just, it was actually dangerous. You know, Kinnock's speech when he sort of faced down militant, 
you know, that's kind of what we wanted to do with a gig because it was just such an intense atmosphere facing off, kind of debating each other, like a rap face-off. Yeah, yeah. But without any nasty repercussions or anything. Yeah. But Kinnock mic drop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Against Derek Hatton and stuff like that. You know, it was just real hard stuff. Well, this documentary, the Jeremy Della, well, it's not really a documentary, but a, a film about the rave culture that I saw last night. He starts off with the miners' strike as being a kind of pivotal moment that yeah. um, has... Which is a huge thing for him, isn't it? Because he did re- reenacted the Battle of Orgrief as well. Uh, it's, yeah. it's really burned into, into Jeremy's consciousness, I think. Yeah. But holy shit, you're reminded of the level of violence... Oh then was just extraordinary and you sort of think well okay britain used to be grim in the 70s and there was violence and riots and things then but actually there was pretty extreme stuff much more recently than that well that was on our doorstep i mean literally where we lived yeah you know the minor strike was and pickets and scabs and you know violence neil kinnock's constituency house is three doors down from james's uh-huh. on the same street and um I can only describe it as heavy. Everything was heavy. The coats were heavy. The jackets were heavy. Donkey jackets. The, the blokes were heavy. They were hard blokes. You know, the police were heavy. Yeah. The atmosphere was heavy. It was just fucking heavy times. You know, and it was every day where we were in Blackwood in the, you know, right in the heart of the South Wales Valleys. It was just where it was all going on. Our environment did form us a lot in that sense. And were there uh, were there people that you knew who oh, were? Yeah. You're right. And and were there definite sort of lines drawn? I remember seeing some footage of some women sat round just hurling abuse at um, people who'd broken the picket yeah. lines when they were going home. And Which stuff. was very rare. In I think we were the last to go back. Actually, and so the South Wales miners stayed out the longest because they were extremely militant. But yeah, if you were trying to cross the picket line and stuff like that. It was, you know... And it was a real sense of desperation mixed with a real sense of community and all those things. I remember thinking for the first time around that point that this is all just going to (laughs) go. I remember it hitting me that, you know, they're not going to win and there's just going to be loads of miners in job centres trying to use computers with really huge hands. Uh You know, mottled hands and, you know, hard-working hands and all those sort of things. It took us a long time in those areas because the reason people were there was because they were mines. You know, the reason Ebervale or Tradiga or all the, all the valleys, people went there because that's where the work was. So when it was gone, it was really going to be hard to replace any of the jobs. And you could feel it at that point. There was another classic Richie quote from where we lived. He said, if Blackwood was a museum... It would be full of rubble and shit. <laughs> that was nice going home every week to see my <laughs> mum and dad. Someone taps you on the shoulder in the street and you're like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a good quote. Yeah. It was meant in good humour. Sure. People could take a joke then. But it was, you know, we'd be walking up and down the high street at that point, sort of just post the miners' strike and everything, you know, dressed up as the New York Dolls, wearing eyeliner, and we did seem like aliens at that point. Did you get a lot of grief for that? I, I tap danced around it because lucky enough I was good at football and cricket and I was captain of the school football team and cricket and stuff. It was a weird dichotomy because everyone thought I was a girl. My nickname was Shirley because my hair was like Shirley Temple. Uh-huh. But luckily I... Really, like ringlets? 
It, it was Kiss Curls. Okay. <laughs> that is, is that what they're called? I don't know. We did get away with it because it was there was a friendly antagonism, but yeah. I never really. Then again, we were bulletproof anyway, so it didn't really. I'm sure we could have been offended. Right, you just styled it out. Yeah, exactly. We did. Yeah. But, Plus, you were not in the business of taking offence. You were no, in the business of giving. That, that's the best way of describing it. It just bounced off us all the, at all those periods. Yeah. But that did toughen us up for them when we came to to meet journalists in London and stuff. And you know, we had a good ground in. Definitely, journalists straight away they really didn't give a fuck about the music at all. They just thought, oh, well, this is going to be a good piece. Quote fodder. Yeah. Cover of the enemy. We played to sixteen people in Coventry Stoker the night before. And we had five grand on us because we just signed with Columbia, uh, CBS that was, or was it Columbia? Anyway, because the Clash had signed and we did a big fake Clash photograph with the heads of Columbia because the Clash had done the same thing. Mm-hmm. And we were in the same boardroom with the Clash. We thought, everything, oh, this is just amazing. And then we got to Coventry and it's 16 people. <laughs> right. And, yeah, and it's the first time we had money in our pockets, genuine cash. Uh, Philip, our manager, who passed away, who was a beautiful man who we lived with in Shepherd's Bush in Askew Road. He withdrew five grand. We were all just, like, hugging it like that on the bus because I was in massive debt at that point from university because I'd developed a really bad addiction to fruit machines. Seriously? (laughs) You know, I was, like, three grand in debt, which doesn't sound much, but it was a lot then. Yeah, yeah. And I had a full grant and everything, so it was not like... it it There's no fees or anything then, you know. So... I thought, oh, great, I can pay, pay my debt off. You love fruit machines. Oh, absolutely. The amount of time and money I wasted on fruit machines. It was just, I was, what, what did you get out of it? I just never understood. I mean, I sort of do. I played them. Um, we had our honeymoon in Las Vegas. All right. The night before 9-11. <laughs> so it was pretty Eight. surreal. We went to, you know, we spent the evening playing the slot machines, just kind of robotically shoving money in and winning. Did you know what you were doing? No, but (laughs) what do you mean, do you know what you were doing? You put the money in and you pull the arm. It was a real art to it in the old days. It was. Really? How? It just was. It it didn't mean you won more, but there was an art to play, you know. Shipley's had a cafe as well, which did Findus pancakes, chips and peas and stuff. So sometimes we would literally lose 60, 70 quid. But we would get a meal out of it with the tokens. And we'd look at it and say, oh, that's all right. You know, we've, we've eaten out of there. Good day's work. We've only lost 60 quid. Yeah. But I did win the £200 jackpot on a ferry at Dover, Calais with a band. It was one of my finest moments. Because it went... Yeah. And everyone started gathering around on the ferry. I bet they did. I was trying to gather up all these pound coins. Wow. That's magic. I mean, it is a good feeling when you win. I used to be big into betting as well. Really? Sky bet. I used to love sky bet. But you managed to stop yourself before you got a serious addiction. Yeah. Yeah, he says. I had to redirect all my mail to James's house at one point because I didn't want my parents to know how much debt I was in. Oh, okay. Oh, man. That was one of the vices that I was never really that excited by. And I, I am tempted still to bet, but then you could do it. It's another thing that changed with phones. Is you used to be able to do sky bets just through the TV remote. So it was brilliant for me. Just through there. But then you had to download an app, and they stopped the system, and you had to do it through a phone. And I haven't got an iPhone or anything, so I just stopped betting, really. Because mm. betting shops are a bit iffy. 
I mean, the whole concept of betting responsibly <laughs> is like... It does not exist. It's like smoking healthily. <laughs> no! No, 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 no! No! No, 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 no! 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 You worked with Tony Visconti. Yes. Back in 2004? Yeah. How was that? It's like the laziest session I've ever done. We went to New York and worked in um, Philip Glass's studio. Uh-huh. Fantastic little place. Tony was amazing. I ate so much out there and shopped so much. But he was such a chap. He was a brilliant bass player. I was quite happy if he would have played bass. I was that lazy at that uh-huh. point. Because <laughs> he had his, his bass, which was on Bowie Records and stuff with him, which I used on a couple. And, and we did four or five tracks and had amazing food but we it, it wasn't his fault we just didn't do enough we just didn't do enough work out there what was your favorite studio experience then you were at rockfield right and rockfield Mon- loads of times yeah yeah and just, just fantastic rockfield is one of the it is the abbey road of residential studios uh-huh. you know every time you go in there we've actually got one of the rockfield desks in our studio now which Rush recorded Hemispheres on and, and Farewell to Kings, and we're huge Rush fans. Um, Bunny Men recorded on it. Everyone, you know, Queen. So Yeah, that's where they recorded Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, and then we worked with Mike Hedges in his chateau in uh, Normandy. I think it's Normandy. Domfront. That was amazing, because that was the, the EMI desk that Pink Floyd recorded Dark Side of the Moon on. Oh, okay. So flying faders and everything in this... Not dilapidated, but sort of fade-in grandeur. What does flying faders mean? Just huge knobs, like you, like the TARDIS. Uh-huh. It's all stuff like that, which you just don't get anymore. Yeah. You know, and um, so all those desks at the time were considered so redundant that Abbey Road got rid of some, and they were actually in a skip. <laughs> really? Outside. And Mike salvaged one. Was well, this pre-eBay or something? Yeah. Right. Maybe this is probably... Eight, mid-80s, okay. I would guess, when everything was going digital. Yeah, yeah. Mike was just such a... He's like six foot six, huge man, and he'd done so many records we loved. He did The Cure, Susie and the Banshees, Mighty War, The Lars. Uh, amazing bloke. So that, that probably was the most happy we've ever been recording. Yeah. And we knew we were onto something because we had these songs like Design for Life in the bag, and we just thought... Oh, Surely now. So you're going in there with all those written, are you? Yeah. Right. Mike had come to this really kind of shoebox rehearsal studio in Cardiff that we used to use to listen to the songs. And James went out drinking with him after a Brains essay, which is Skull Attack, as we call it, which is a real dark, like a, like a Guinness kind of drink. Mm-hmm. And they got really hammered. And Mike just said, oh, you've got some real... Shows how old-fashioned is. You've got some real jukebox hits. He said. Yeah. And we obviously had a loyal fan base anyway, so with Design for Life, we just thought, surely this cannot fail. We thought Motorcycle Emptiness would be the record that did that, but it is probably six minutes of too much existential angst to uh-huh. really, really cut through. It is probably our biggest song worldwide in a lot of ways, but Design for Life was the one that, you know, lost out. By 2,000 copies to Mark Morrison first week. Oh, really? <laughs> to what? Blue Tones? Uh, no, Mark oh, Morrison, Mark Morrison Return of the Mac. Mark Morris? Yeah, I was going to say. Return of the Mac. 
Return of the Mac. Yeah. yeah. I think we did 92,000 and he did 94. Well, that was a good song. Yeah, it was a good song. Oh, my God. Return <laughs> of the Mac. I grew up loving the Guinness Book of Hits singles and yeah. all stuff like that. So I was such a stat, stato of our own sales and hits and everything. Okay. I think we had... 33 consecutive top 40 hits. Whoa, that's very good. It was amazing. One of the best, that was. Yeah. I think Pet Shop Boys might have beaten us. Wow, that's amazing for a band like the Manics, yeah. isn't it? You sort of think that you'd be too weird for that. Yeah. But no, you've got all the big epics in there. And when, when you're in the studio doing a song like Design for Life, who is keeping an eye on, like... Because presumably you can over-egg that pudding quite easily. We can, definitely. <laughs> so We are prone to it. Right. But um, Mike helped rein us in, I think. It was less guitars. You know, it was quite a tame record for us in a lot of ways, even though there's a lot on there, timpanis and strings. But we um, sometimes we do go over the top. It's just in our nature, I think, that live performers sometimes trying to transfer it on record when we've just got to keep a distance. I've got to, you know, sometimes there's too many words and too much passion. Mm-hmm. But that work is it's just getting that fine balance. You know, of not stripping all that away. But at that point, James was James lived in a studio anyway. That was, you know, he still would if he could probably, but he um, he is pouring out with music all the time. And is the music that you really like similar? I like less and less music than I used to. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a sad indictment on myself, but... Um, Have you tried smoking weed? I've never... The only drugs I've ever taken, really, are when I've been in hospital or Nurofen Express... Right. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. Have you not? No. I feel like the only organ that sort of functions vaguely well in my body is my brain. Right, okay, yeah. Because everything else does fall apart. Yeah. What it feels like it to me. And um, I'd like to keep that as, you know, in good nick as I can. Because it is a muscle after all. Is it? I was thinking about that the other day. It's not literally a muscle, is it? It must be a muscle in there. It's just a big old... What is it? It's a brain. Isn't a brain a specific thing? The mind is, it, is a muscle Is a too. brain an organ? That I don't know. It's got special status, doesn't it, the brain? <laughs> the brain is just a brain. But it's not a muscle. You're not going to pick anything up with your brain. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I find the things that burned into my skull from 14 to 24... Yeah. resonate much more it's the first time the last two years where i i, I struggle to remember things recent things yeah i know it's a horrible I've, feeling isn't it it is yeah but even before you came in i wrote a few things down and also addresses nick clegg <laughs> there's like a list up there little pointers in my own own mind japan because i remember your trip to japan what were you going to say about nick clegg Oh, just what a terrible cunt he is, you know. And, <laughs> Why was he on your mind? Uh, what was it? Uh, just in case politics came up and you just, you know, that the idea that, one, because he's such a fervent Remainer, all of a sudden people have started liking him again mm. and stupidly sort of trusting him again. And then, you know, he goes and works for the true fucking evil of the world and being foreign, head of foreign affairs for Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, a company which colludes in rigging elections anyway it just seems so you know it just sums up the sort of hideous nature of politicians now mm-hmm. I mean, not that i'd ever won one and i fucking despise it but why on earth has he got a knighthood has he got a knighthood sir nick clegg 
you know, since when head of Facebook Foreign Affairs? Can you think of a worse sentence at the moment than that? Not off the top of my head, but if you give me a while, I could probably come up with something. <laughs> it's like, I have no idea why anyone of musical status of our generation would want to take an OBE or an MBE or anything. Why would you want to be in a club? With a lot of dodgy people, a lot. Of well, dodgy they always people. say, "Oh, it's for, for my, my mum." <laughs> well, I mean, one of my favourite people of all time is Polly Harvey. Yeah, you know, lyrics, just a demeanour, a fierce kind of independence. And then she took an MBE, mm-hmm. and I was just thinking because a lot of her lyrics just they don't align those scenarios, do they? And she's certainly not someone who chases any kind of showbiz sort of pat on the back and I don't even care that she'd done it really but I do find it weird that you'd want to yeah but that's just her weird thing and then she could come back to you with your weird thing and that she doesn't add right hotels whatever it might be everyone's got their I just don't believe that everyone is completely watertight oh no you know and 1000% consistent that's not a practical way to live your life and it absolutely Hypocrisy, or Richie always used to go on about it at the start, is just, you know, you have, to, you have to take us that there is always going to be an element of hypocrisy because no one can walk that line, like you said. You know, you can try your best. It's, we, had a, we wrote a manifesto at the start, which I, I can't remember, but it was 10 points, like never write a love song, never allow girlfriends at gigs. <laughs> Basically, a lot of it was we can't get any girlfriends, so... They're, so they're not allowed. <laughs> so they're not allowed. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was lots of stuff like that, really. It's quite funny, but, you know, the, the old Lenin, Leninist five-year plans were never going to be a reality in the real world. Well, if there's one way to guarantee getting called a hypocrite at some point, it's to write a manifesto. Yes. <laughs> the the honours list, bowing down before the monarchy, it's just, I'd rather stab my eyeballs out with a pencil. I don't even hate them that much either. It's just not something I could do. Hmm. It's not a personal thing. It's like an institutional thing, I think. Cynicism. Yeah. That's where we're at now. Like, I was reading about, you know, when I was at art school, it was all about postmodernism. Yeah. Now it's the most fun thing to read about, and it was all like, oh, this is great. We can do everything and just say it's ironic. And um, we'll deconstruct (laughs) it. and And, wow, we're clever. And it's good because it means that we don't actually have to put quite as much work in. <laughs> um, and this is win-win. But then that only takes you so far. Yeah, and then, um, you know, did you ever read David Foster Wallace? Only via Ritchie. Right. Yeah. He was into him, was he? Yeah. And he was the first person I was aware of that suddenly started saying, actually, where's all the irony leading to? Yeah. What are you left with once you've deconstructed everything? You. You've just dismantled everything and... We're left with now. Yeah. Segway, you're not left with now because I got you a present. All right. Now, don't get excited. This is really a shocking... Shocking. Shocking. Yeah. I got you a chocolate advent calendar. I like that. Anis Hotel Chocolat. Yeah. Anis Caramel. Caramel. Is that good? Yeah. That is brilliant. And I thought, um, what would be decadent for a rock star? And I thought chocolate advent calendar and you just eat them when you want <laughs> i don't know if you ever had advent calendars when I you were little advent yes it was so, did I. so exciting and you respected the doors right yeah absolutely yes i still get them for my doors. kids right do they respect the doors they do yeah okay good i never i mean we didn't have chocolate ones until 
quite late on. Yeah. But you don't have to respect those doors. You've... I will respect them. Okay. Well, enjoy them. You've got your mug, oh, podcast mug. That'll be in the studio. Got your T-shirt. It's the nicest I t-shirt. like the T-shirt. It's a nice material. That's a nice colour as well. What else was on your list, by the way? I think we've probably got... <laughs> and the more I find my voice, the more I hate the sound of it, which is a brilliant quote from Riley Walker. Uh-huh. It's American. I just thought it was... I don't know why I've written that down. Do you hate the sound of your own voice? Oh, yes. You've got a lovely voice. Oh, that's nice of you. No, I, you have. I get fucking sick of it. No, it's a nice voice. That's very kind. I like voices anyway, because I love listening to like cricket commentary and stuff like that when I was young. I love the radio. I yeah. mean, I listen to more radio than TV now, because it's still focused and it's still... You know, the amount of Radio 4 I listen to and the archives on Radio 4 and the iPlay. Oh, sounds as it's now fucking called. Why has that changed? What was wrong with the Radio iPlayer? Why have we got to download something new called Sounds? So it's not just BBC stuff that you're going to get through Sounds? Isn't it? No, I think you're going to be... It's, it's like a portal that will enable you to access all <laughs> kinds of stuff. I don't know. You're, going, they you're were, back at the party last night. It's yeah. a portal that... It's a platform. It's a multi-platform <laughs> portal hub that is going to aggregate content and ring fence quite a lot of exciting new media across the other platforms in a very challenging and forward thrusting, robust, yeah, robust way. Yeah, yeah, robust. That is one of those words that people hear and they're like, "Oh, robust." I'm going to start saying robust. It's true. I, whenever I say it, I always just think of a robot with big tits. That's my problem. All right, before we wrap up, have you going back to hotels, if you don't mind, are you a complainer? Never, no. Only afterwards. Right. I very rarely complain about anything, food or, you know, it's not, my, it's not my thing. Have you noticed in some modern hotels that it's all about smells now? Mm. and down the corridors and sometimes it's overpowering it is yeah it's too perfumed I don't mind a woody fiery cedar wood kind of smell there's a hotel in Dublin called the Marion which is absolutely gorgeous which has that smell and it is a fire a cedar wood fire I think but some are just pumping out I don't know. It smells like... Um, From the perfume Freshener, shop. yeah. yeah. It, oh, I fucking despise people who use air freshener. Mm. If your house isn't clean enough to have natural air, don't fucking coat it in something that should be done in a lavatory. Write a song about it. <laughs> I'd come close. Come <laughs> Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. 
Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Rosie, 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 come here. Oh, look how obedient that super fast Whippet Poodle Cross is, racing towards me as soon as I call. Oh, mate, that is, talk about a bond. We have got an incredible bond, don't we, dog? There was a time when Rosie would just totally have ignored me and uh, carried on buggering around in the middle of the woods making everyone worried and not returning to the house, sparking searches with torches and all that sort of stuff. But we haven't had one of those for a while, I'm glad to say. Touch wood. Fence post. Anyway, look, that was Nikki Wire. And I'm extremely grateful to Nikki for sitting down with me and being such good company. It was very nice to meet him and talk with him. I have posted links to some of what we chatted about. What have we got? What have we got? Link to NME compilation of Nicky Wire's most memorable quips. The Neil Kinnock 1985 speech. Apparently, there's no one video that I could find that is just full coverage of that speech. Perhaps because the original footage is owned by some news agency or other? I don't know. Anyway, I've put a link to the uh, fullest version I could find. And there's also a link to the Jeremy Della rave documentary that we spoke about from 2018, Everybody in the Place. But there you go, Nikki Wire links, a couple of quick plugs. I was on Sue Perkins's podcast and we recorded that conversation a while back. Feels like the summer. Maybe it wasn't that long ago. Anyway... It was very nice to talk to Sue. I like her a lot. Hope that I'll get her on this podcast at some point. Link in the description. And I also recorded a small part for a new comedy drama audio series called Fugitives, written and performed by Max and Ivan, very talented, funny character comedians who I hadn't met before, but I'd seen some of their stuff, so it was nice to be able to do a little bit with them. And it was produced by Ben Walker of Rahalestapa fame and Do the Right Thing fame. So anyway, some extra listening for you there, if you wish. Rosie! It's getting all dark and grey, so I'm going to head home, make myself a giant cup of tea and carry on writing some timeless literature. Oh, I'll tell you one more thing. I saw Joe Cornish the other day And we recorded the Christmas podcast. It was good fun. Lovely to see Joe. He was in uh, Norwich doing a talk at the UEA. After Joe did his talk, we went back to Castle Buckley's and 
we recorded the Christmas podcast. It was going to be our last opportunity to do so before the big day for various reasons. So uh, we did it. Uh, But obviously we weren't able to include stuff that uh, listeners had sent in, which was a shame, but there was nothing we could really do about it. We had a window, we had to take it. Plus it just takes so long to get the contributions in and then go through them all and we just, there just wasn't the time this year so I apologize for that but I hope that you will enjoy the uh, Christmas podcast nonetheless but look that's enough crapping on from me Rosie I think has already chipped off home and I'm going the same way thank you very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for production support on this episode. Thanks to Annika Meissen for conversation editing. Thanks once again to Nikki Wire. Thanks to you for listening. And until next time, we stand uncomfortably close in the packed podcast commuter train. Take very good care and look, I'm going to say it. I love you. Okay? Bye!